The Ray Hanania Show is brought to you by the U.S. Arab Radio Network and sponsored by Arab News Newspaper, the Middle East's leading English language publication with print and online editions in Saudi Arabia, Dubai, France, Japan, Pakistan, England, and the United States. Listen to live radio every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern in Detroit, Washington, D.C., New York, and Ontario, Canada. Or watch the live broadcast on facebook.com forward slash Arab News. The Ray Hanania Show is rebroadcast in Chicago at 12 noon on Thursday. For more information on the radio stations, live Facebook broadcast, and podcasts, visit ArabNews.com. And now, here's your host, columnist and U.S. special correspondent for Arab News, Ray Hanania. It is Wednesday, September 28th, 2022, and I am your host, Ray Hanania. We're going to have uh, two uh, great guests today that I hope you'll enjoy. Uh, the first is Arab News UN correspondent Ephraim Kosafi, who's going to talk about UNGA 77, the 77th session of the United Nations General Assembly in New York City that just ended this week. And he'll give us an overview of some of the big topics that were addressed. And then later on in the show, we will talk with Kevin Schumacher, who is the Deputy Executive Director of Women for Afghan Women, a grassroots civil society organization dedicated to protecting and promoting the rights of disenfranchised Afghan women and girls in Afghanistan. WAW is based in the U.S. and has services in several uh, provinces. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with our interview right after these messages. ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. As we continue to face COVID-19, we're now facing flu season. Influenza has the potential to infect millions, putting lives and the healthcare system at risk. Now more than ever, it's essential to protect yourself from influenza by getting the flu vaccine. The flu vaccine is safe and effective and can't give you the flu. To protect yourself and those at highest risk, get your flu vaccine. Learn more at michigan.gov flu. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Get ready for an amazing experience at Ishtar Restaurant on 15 Mile Road in Sterling Heights. Enjoy excellent hospitality from owners Ali al-Baghdadi and Fatty Bottom serving the best in Mediterranean food. Try Chef Ali al-Baghdadi's famous shawarma, the best Iraqi grills and food, and the best Arabic and international dishes. Dine in our authentic atmosphere or take out. Call 586-698-2585 or check us out on Facebook. Ishtar Restaurant practices all CD guidelines and is open every day 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. Have an amazing experience today at Ishtar Restaurant, 3625 15 Mile Road, Sterling Heights. Uh, it's good to have you, Ephraim, Ephraim Kosfi, my uh, colleague at Arab News covering the United Nations. What a hectic two weeks it's been, and you still have another week. That's true. We still have one more day actually left today. Uh, one day of speeches and then we're done. But you're so right. Two weeks, uh, they really felt like a whole year. It, um, this was the first in-person General Assembly since 2019. 
and um, you could see the city again the way it used to be during Anga uh, roads closed off everywhere and delegations coming and going into the UN and to all the hotels and venues around the UN as well um, thousands of bilateral meetings hundreds of uh, missions um, uh, events you know to highlight the priorities of each of their countries um, it's been really something these two weeks but um, the thing maybe if you want to talk about what dominated this general assembly the most ray is of course first of all the war in ukraine um, right once again western officials condemned the war they accused putin of being the one man behind that war and the only man who can end it there were a lot of insults and accusations flying around between russian officials and uh, for example you know foreign minister uh, sergey lavrov and um, uh, western officials like president macron and like secretary blinken and president biden uh, accusing the russians of uh, you know recklessly endangering the world also with their nuclear holocaust threats and, uh, and they talked of war crimes uh, so it really dominated um, you know, the discussion with some leaders, for example, the Turkish leader, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who played an important role in the Black Sea Grain Initiative, uh, which saw the uh, Ukrainian grain stuck in ports finally being able to be released and be uh, sold or distributed to um, hunger hotspots around the world. Uh, we saw him and President Macron sort of offering themselves up as would-be peacemakers in the war in Ukraine um, as well. Um, talking about peacemaking, Saudi Arabia was pretty, uh, was in the headlines as well uh, after uh, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman played a very important prominent role in uh, the uh, prisoner exchange between Ukraine uh, and Russia. Uh, that's, you know, on, um, uh, you know, the role, the positive role that the kingdom has played during the Sangha. Um, apart from the war in Ukraine, of course, it's um, uh, the resultant food crisis uh, was also very prominent. President Biden held a food summit. Um, pretty much every official from every country, every head of state was talking about that as well and what to do, um, you know, to make sure uh, that um, uh, famine, which is knocking on the door of millions across Africa, even Syria, um, uh, is prevented. So there was a lot of talk about that and the role not only of governments and uh, um, politicians, but also the private sector and the different organizations. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation had a huge event, for example, um, centered around tackling hunger in innovative uh, way. And basically, um, uh, as was expected as well, the UN itself was in the spotlight. And uh, how relevant is this international organization has also been a question that dominated everything. Right. Uh, we have uh, Erdogan again uh, saying that we need a new system and needs to be more efficient. While, for example, the Yemeni uh, Rashad Al-Alimi, the chairman of the Presidential Leadership Council, um, uh, was calling for alternative modes of challenging and deterring uh, what is happening in his country, Yemen, and highlighted uh, the futility of diplomacy with 
uh, terrorist groups like uh, Houthis, even as many UN and US officials during ANGA were actually praising and lauding uh, the truce and its uh, beneficial effects, you know, from uh, the reduction in civilian casualties to, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the easing up of, uh, you know, the resumption of, of uh, commercial flights between Sana'a Airport and Amman and Cairo, um, where more than 20,000 Yemenis finally, who had been pinned down in their country, were able to leave, seek medical advice, see their families overseas. So they were really praising uh, the truce uh, in Yemen and calling for its renewal and saying that uh, if we invest in the political process in Yemen, uh, then the whole world will stand behind the Yemeni people and external uh, actors will be considerably uh, weakened. Uh, so, uh, you know, the war in Ukraine, food security, but also, Ray, if I may add, uh, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, there was a huge spotlight on that as well. And by all measures, every single one of those 17 goals, which aim at, you know, well-being and eradicating poverty all around the world on all levels, every indicator in those goals has been off track and has suffered serious setbacks because of the conflict in Ukraine which was preceded also, let's not forget, by a pandemic that somehow is still ongoing. Well, I, I was going to ask you about the pandemic. I, um, I know that when I'm talking to people here who are not at the UN, the first question they have is, yeah, this is the first session since uh, in person in several years, I think like two and a half, maybe three years. Um, were people wearing face masks still, though? Did you notice people with face masks? Or did it look like the face mask just kind of went to the wayside? Some people were wearing face masks. A lot or just a few? Just a few. And I think uh, there, uh, there was some criticism to the leaders that they were talking around, walking around. You know, none of them was seen with a mask. The SDGs have been around every year, correct? Those are goals. Yes. And we've seen a number of them. Do we know how closer the UN is to achieving those goals, or is it a struggle still? And I'm sure coronavirus had a lot to do with maybe slowing the achievement record down, but are they making real progress? They're making some progress, or is it uh, difficult to achieve? Uh, very difficult, Ray. I mean, we're only eight years away from 2030, and by every measure, every indicator, I'm sorry, every indicator is off. For example, and we talked about this on your show a couple of weeks ago, let's take the gender equality goal. Right. Um, uh, you, you know, we are 300 years uh, away from achieving gender equality in the legal systems in the world. So that should just tell you right. how far off the track we are. Um, the climate as well, you know, one of the goals is um, uh, climate uh, uh, climate adaptation and, uh, you know, and free and, and clean environment for all. We saw that um, uh, we realized one more time, for example, uh, that all the climate pledges have not, uh, that most of the climate pledges have not been paid up and that leaders are just not taking it uh, seriously. And, um, you know, examples abound of uh, the consequences of uh, severe weather uh, events that are uh, a consequence of climate change. Look at Pakistan, and it's not a coincidence that the UN chief 
um, uh, last visit before Anga was to Pakistan, where he spent several days and where he said that the flooded area is three times the size of his own country. Wow. He called it climate carnage. Uh, and then he blamed it all, uh, the dysfunction on, uh, he blamed it all like this, uh, you know, the setback in climate, uh, uh, in addressing climate change on the, what he called the colossal dysfunction of the global community. He once again called uh, for leaders to come together. He reminded everyone of multilateral, of the importance of multilateralism, of, um, uh, you know, saying that no problem can be solved by one country alone. And no problem is hitting one country alone anymore. Uh, so the SDGs are off track, but at the same time, um, people like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundations, they came up with you know, plans and uh, ideas and uh, data that shows that if leaders put their mind to it, uh, these setbacks can be reversed once again. You know whether in supporting farmers in Africa or in create, you know, in sowing, for example, more resistant seeds um, uh, and in focusing more on climate adaptation, not just, you know, uh, uh, just helping the farmers and agriculture community, you know, to, uh, to resist, you know, and to adapt uh, to climate change. Everything is possible, they're saying, if right. we uh, get to the job right now and begin working now. Uh, so it's both pessimism, but also data uh, showing uh, real chances of really reversing the setbacks if there is political will, which is another buzzword also uh, at ANGA this year, political will. Everyone says it's lacking. Yeah, but obviously there's so many challenges. I don't know how you can get to the SDGs when you have so many big issues o outside of the big issues. I mean, obviously, Ukraine. Um, and uh, a few of the other conflicts. Were there any like uh, interesting side issues yeah. between people? I know I heard that uh, Pakistan and uh, Afghanistan got into a little tiff over some remarks that the prime minister, I think, of Pakistan made regarding the Taliban, and they got all upset. Were there uh, other things like that that maybe so much happens at the UN, it's impossible to cover everything? It's impossible to cover everything. Yes. I want to talk about the Iranian president, but I want to answer first this question Pakistan and Afghanistan. It was also, um, you know, a very prominent discussion, especially because Afghan women, before Anga, made several, uh, uh, you know, media encounters where they um, uh, really voiced uh, every concern that they have, where they, um, um, uh, you know, have been calling uh for the world to pay attention to the situation of the afghan woman who is the only woman in the world who is not allowed to go to school and uh, pakistan and i asked the pakistani foreign minister about uh, the afghan women you know the foreign minister is the son uh, bilawal zardari bhutto bhutto zardari is the son of uh, benazir bhutto who's the right. first muslim woman to ever had um a democratic government in the world. I asked him, what do you think of the Afghan women? They're saying that you guys are not doing enough to support their cause. And he said he's going to convene as the chair of the uh, OIC. He's going to convene in a meeting just specifically to focus on Afghan women. The Pakistanis who last year have called the world to be patient with the Taliban, to give them some time to, uh, you know, uh, to see their... Uh, uh, first government, which was not inclusive at all, as a first step 
and to be patient and to this year they have both their disappointment with the Taliban, especially uh, on their track, on their gender equality track and what they're doing to women. Um, and uh, as Bhutto Zardari told me, this is not just an issue for the international community. This is also an issue for the Muslim world because he said that Islam is what gives women their rights and Islam is what protects women's rights as well. Uh, so yeah, that was a big issue as well. You also have uh, President Raisi of Iran, Ray. Uh, you know, there were daily did, Iranian protests. So, come again. Did, I was going to say that uh, I, I know that uh, there was, uh, there's obviously some contention given all the protests that are taking place now. They're getting a lot of attention. Did everybody sit through or did people walk out when he was there? Was there much of a walkout or a protest against him? Or did they all sit there and uh, listen? Every single day, there were protests against him outside the UN. Outside. Where opposition groups and Iranian citizens in exile. Um, they were calling for his visa to be revoked. Um, they were calling for him. Uh, there was a lawsuit that was launched against him as well by many dissidents and opposition groups as well here. And people who have suffered at the hands of the regime. But what's interesting, uh, Ray, um, uh, is that um, even as his regime was uh, cracking down on protesters in Iran and killing people, I think we have over 40 dead by now, he took the stage and made no mention uh, of uh, Masa Amini, uh, who was, whose death was the catalyst for the protest. He made absolutely no mention of her and instead presented himself, believe it or not, as the defender uh, of uh, injustice and uh, the as the defender of the fight against injustice, you know, wow. and he presented his country as a model right. for human rights, right, and democracy. Um, uh, so uh, just this discrepancy was the most uh, you know staggering one at, during Anga, and uh, otherwise he continued to repeat the same rhetoric, like for example on the stalled negotiations. Uh, to revamp the 2015 deal, the nuclear, the Iran nuclear deal, uh, he again reiterated what he called the need for guarantees that the U.S. Uh, won't withdraw uh, from the deal, which means more you right. know, stalling. It doesn't seem like there's much progress moving on that at all. Uh, were there lots of uh, criticisms of Iran expressed during a lot of the speeches? Or was it just some of the speeches, like when President Biden got there? I know he criticized Iran. Several of the countries did. But was it just a, a was it just a blurb of a few people or did a lot of the countries bring up Iran the way they might have like the rights of women or um, you big, know, climate uh, change? Iran was a big story because yeah. of what was happening in the country, right. because of the activisms of Iranians in exile outside. Um, it was a huge story, and not least because of the nuclear issue as well. We had a press conference with the IAEA head, Rafael Grossi. Once again, he called on Iran uh, you know, to give access to his uh, organization, uh, to the areas where, uh, to the nuclear facilities where the regime had removed the cameras and hidden the activity uh, that was taking place inside. Once again, Rafael Grossi said, we cannot move on before, you know, the IAEA has access and, and can really see what happened 
when uh, during the two months when those cameras uh, were uh, hidden. So that issue was also uh, uh, big on Iran. And then uh, another topic I have, maybe a final one, if, if you don't mind, uh, um, the issue of uh, the Security Council versus the General Assembly. Yes. Was there a big discussion about the, I know earlier you mentioned there are people that want change. The system yes. needs to be changed. I think it was Turkey. I think you mentioned Erdogan who said that. Everyone. Um, yeah, Erdogan. Um, what about, uh, was there much of a voice because really nothing gets done it's true. if the security council doesn't come together and they're not going to come together on contentious issues. Yes, it's true, Ray, not just the, uh, not just Erdogan, everyone of the member states, uh, was criticizing the UN system and it's ironic, Ray, because what is the UN? It right. is its member states, right? So they go on stage and they criticize the UN, but then it is them who are supposed to be, <laughs> you know, respecting what the UN stands for. And it's interesting you mention uh, Security Council versus the other bodies of the UN. And here I want to quote the Secretary General, who had a very clear answer to that, that the United Nations is not just the Security Council. Right. The United Nations is several other bodies including the General Assembly, including WHO, including, uh, WHO, including the World Food Program. Uh, and can you imagine the world without the World Food Program? Can you imagine all these people who are left in war zones and in remote forgotten areas if the WFP was not bringing them food, checking on them, uh, fighting their battle, you know, outside, trying to get them aid, you know, trying to have solutions to their problems. So the UN is not just the Security Council. The Security Council also, um, um, uh, there have been many calls for reforms of the Security Council, but it's interesting because many of those who call uh, for reforms are actually calling for uh, an expansion of the council to include more countries um, and to give veto to more countries. So basically they're asking for more power to sure. themselves. And, you know. and a veto basically can stop anything. Yeah. So and more vetoes means less gets done in the Security Council. The tragedy, I guess, with the UN is that the Security Council has so much power and yeah. the General Assembly, which represents all the countries, they do have power on issues of non-contention yeah. where someone isn't being criticized for not doing something. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. It's uh, I and you said this is the final today is the final day of uh, the UNGA 77. It comes to a close today. Yes. Today. So it's pretty much ceremonial then. We have a list of speakers also today. We're going to be covering that a little later. Um, yeah. All right. All right. Ephraim Kosfi, okay. the Arab News United Nations uh, correspondent. Ephraim, we, we always appreciate you coming on board and helping us and to understand what's happening. And I know how rough it is at the UN because I covered it the one year and it was difficult. It, uh, it's so huge to get from one end to the other, let alone to cover 50 different things happening in one day, all yeah. at one time. I don't know how you do it. Anyway, I want to thank you for joining us this one today. Thank you so much, Ray. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And I want to thank everybody uh, for listening. This is the Ray Hanania show. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, we'll have our next guest. We'll be right back right after these messages. 
ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. Ziad Brand, quality products from our family to yours. Ziad Brothers Importing offers the finest quality products, including brands like Sultan, Kraft, Nestle, Hook, Rigo Picon, Dana, and many more. Ask your retailer to carry these fine products because you deserve the very best. For more information, visit our website at www.ziad.com. That's www.ziad.com. Ziad, quality products from our family to yours. Life is a nonprofit charity that's provided humanitarian aid and development to people and communities for over 25 years, regardless of race, color, religion, or cultural background. When disaster occurs here or around the world, Life for Relief and Development rushes in to provide food, medical aid, and shelter to those in need. Please help improve these efforts. Make your tax-deductible donation to Life now at lifeusa.org or call 248-424-7493. I'd like to welcome our next guest, Kevin Schumacher, who is the Deputy Executive Director of Women for Afghan Women, a grassroots civil society organization that is dedicated to protecting and promoting the rights of disenfranchised Afghan women and girls in Afghanistan. WAW is based in the United States and has services in several provinces in Afghanistan. Uh, Mr. Schumacher, thank you so much for joining us today on radio. Thank you for having me. So before, give us kind of a little overview of what is the situation um, for Afghan women today? It sounds so dire. Tell us how bad is it? Or is it is it not as bad as we hear? Or is it worse than what we hear? What What is the situation? Ray, I, uh, before talking about uh, the situation of women in Afghanistan specifically, I would like us to think about what happened over the past 13 months in Afghanistan. We had a dramatic regime change in that country as a result of which the international community decided to withdraw from that country. All of a sudden, billions of dollars worth of humanitarian and aid assistance was stopped. And uh, the international community decided to disengage with that country. So now you have hundreds of thousands of professionals, men and women, who used to work with international organizations, or they were working in domestic sectors, but their business was funded directly or indirectly by international community. All these people, all of a sudden find themselves in a situation that there is no money coming to the country anymore. There is a government in Kabul that is not recognized internationally. And uh, people really have no idea what tomorrow brings to them. Uh, many countries decided that they don't want to have any sort of diplomatic or business transaction with Afghanistan because, again, so much is uncertain on the ground. U.S. government decided that the de facto authorities, the Taliban, are terrorist entities. So on so many levels, 
it is illegal to do business with them, especially if you are a US-based entity, or even if you are internationally based, but you have transactions with the United States, you have to be very careful dealing with the Taliban. So all of that has translated into a very chaotic financial situation in Afghanistan. A lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of people um, basically were on the verge of poverty to begin with. Afghanistan is one of the poorest countries in Asia. And if you look at the UN statistics, average Afghans live with under $1,200 a year, $1,200 a year, and that's a good day. So all of a sudden you have billions of dollars of aid money that is no longer available. Just to give you an idea, um, in the years past, when you had the Republic in Afghanistan, the internationally recognized government in power, the annual budget for Afghanistan was something around five and a half to six billion dollars, half of which was international aid. So consider a country of 30 million people, 30, 40 million people, half of their budget is coming from international donations. And all of a sudden, you don't have that donation anymore. And even the current regime, there are a bunch of people who were malicious, so they really don't have any skills in running the government, and they are not uh, recognized by the international community. So there are huge financial problems for everybody. Why is this important? Because you can't single out women or any segment of the society for that matter or just talk about them. You have to talk about the, the economic situation that is you know, affecting day in and day out millions of lives in Afghanistan. So uh, with that came, of course, the mass exodus of a lot of intellectuals from that country. And so what, right now, what we are dealing with is a situation of where we have um, hundreds of thousands of educated people decided to leave Afghanistan. A lot of them came to the West, but also a lot of them chose to leave Afghanistan either for Pakistan or for Iran. A lot of them went to neighboring countries like Turkey or the Gulf region. So there is a brain drain that is actively happening in that country. And what is left is the majority of people who unfortunately have no way of getting out or they're not skilled enough. Uh, and especially for women in Afghanistan, you have a population that based on UN statistics, 70% of Afghan women had no access to education. They are illiterate. So you have massive illiteracy, massive starvation, massive poverty. This is the reality of Afghanistan today. And that is why there is a, a urgent need by international community to consider Afghanistan as a human rights crisis at the moment. So let me just dissect that a little bit because that's interesting. So up until a, couple, a year ago when uh... How many months was it? About 18 months, I think? 13 months ago in August. was Yes. 13 months ago in August that we withdrew um, and the Taliban took over. Up until that point, there were all kinds of several billions going into Afghanistan to support organizations, to create jobs, um, to create uh, employment, to support families, to create a whole infrastructure of a society. Once that goes out, all that collapses. And then on top of that, women who have always been the target of Taliban repression are now underneath that suffering even worse. That sounds horrible. 
But you pointed out something that I thought was interesting. Uh, the U.S., they, uh, they consider the Taliban a terrorist entity. So they are, we are not, we don't allow people now, right, to actually go in and do business with the Taliban. That actually hurts the people then, doesn't it? How do we get around this situation um, where to get aid to them if we're prohibited from doing that? Is there a way to do that? Uh, that you, you raise a very important point, Ray. I think a couple of things is happening at, at the same time. One thing is that right now, Afghanistan has become this charity case. And I think that it itself is a tragedy. Why? Because there are millions of Afghans who in the past two decades have been able to receive education, have been able to become professionals in their field. And as I said, after the collapse of the internationally recognized regime, they just decided that this is not their show anymore. They moved out of Afghanistan. And so what we're dealing with is a situation where people are desperate and destitute. And then at the same time, you have this international pressure. Obviously, there are for legitimate reasons, for example, the way that the de facto authorities has refused to include you know, minorities, religious and ethnic minorities in the government, or for the reasons of the fact that the Taliban has refused to allow women to have access to education. These are very legitimate demands by international community. At the same time, you have uh, a scenario in which many Western institutions, banks, and uh, financial institutions are not allowed to do business with the Taliban. And that has made everybody's life extremely difficult. People who are doing business in Afghanistan cannot deal with outside and have business transactions as they used to do. International aid agencies have to find alternative ways, some of which are not as savory as you know, using a banking system should be. A lot of basically, money service or hawala is, is many of your audience might be familiar with the hawala system but again these are not very transparent systems they are not recognized by you and they are discouraged by u.s government so people are trying to find alternative ways to get money to afghanistan again the choice is not between you know prosperity and okay living the, the, the choice is between surviving another day or literally having mass casualties because of starvation, because of winter coming and there is no food. And again, these are people that in a good day didn't have much to begin with. Um, yeah. For two decades, Afghanistan was receiving a lot of international aid, but again, there was a huge amount of mismanagement and corruption. We are all you know, aware of all the stories that we hear, a trillion dollar of US money went there and a lot of them was, even it was spent on questionable items that nobody, even the US auditors cannot find you know, reasons for their expenses. So there is right now a dire need for us and for the families in Afghanistan to find a way to survive another day. And I think that is the reality of everyday people in Afghanistan. But what I hear you saying is that, um, especially, and I'm gonna focus on Afghan women, which is what your organization focuses on, because I think they are the most uh, oppressed in this change system in Afghanistan. I'm sure that business people, uh, the men, may have a way to find a way to adapt to this horrible situation that they now live in. Um, but it sounds like women don't have that ability to do that. So they've gone from a situation 
where they would have encouragement to be educated, to seek professions, to expand their minds, to expand their freedom to a situation where now they're forced to figure out how do we even survive to put food on our table? Um, how many women are we talking about that, that are, that uh, do you think that we find in that situation of what a horrendous choice they have to make? The sad reality is nobody really knows the exact numbers. The African authorities right now, the Taliban refuses to discuss the plight of women uh, proactively, they always insist that, oh, they are working on it. I, and I'm not sure what that means. You know, there is not that much work, you know, for a woman to be allowed to go to school. This is not a rocket science. You know, Afghanistan has been traditionally a Muslim country. The curriculum has been Islamic. There's been a school segregation. So everything that Taliban is asking for has already been there. And I'm not sure what they're exactly trying to accomplish by denying the right of a woman to have access to education. Now, at the same time, I also want to contextualize this because you're right, the men have a better chance of survival. But when a man loses their livelihood, there is more likely for them to go home and have a family that is deprived of food. There is, they have to pull their kids out of school, uh, boys and girls, and send them as day laborer. There is a more chance of domestic violence cases to occur when the economic pressure builds up. So these are all realities of human lives. You can't deny that. And then you also see this flow of you know, stories. You see girls and boys are being sold on the street. I have heard horrendous stories, horrendous stories of people offering their kids for as cheap as $40. Imagine that, sending your daughter or your, your son for $40 so that your family has another month of food on the table. So these are the realities of people. And of course, we have to understand in Afghanistan, because of four decades of war, starting from you know, 1970s with the Soviet intervention, and then the 90s, the civil war, and then the US intervention for two decades, you have hundreds of thousands of widows. And these are the female breadwinners of the family. And they have lost access to the job market, they cannot show up at work in many provinces in Afghanistan right now. It is illegal. In some provinces, the governor might be more open-minded and allow them. But as a general rule, women are not allowed to go to work. In Kabul, the capital city, if you are a woman, you're out of luck. You can't go to school. You cannot go to work. And as you can imagine what kind of economic pressure that builds on families that are literally trying to survive one day at a time. I know you mentioned some of this, but tell us the specific restrictions that now exist on women. What can they do and what can they not do? So um, here's the thing. The, let me start by the, explaining what we used to do. Our, our organization used to offer a whole host of services, including a number of shelters for survivals of domestic violence. Unfortunately, domestic violence is an issue that often ignored in African society and people don't want to talk about it, but it's a reality. It's a sad reality that uh, women are exposed to domestic violence, not only by their spouses, but also by their in-laws. You know, women need to be disciplined, quote unquote, you know, by family members. And so you see horrendous cases of mental and physical abuse that is being perpetuated. So we used to offer these holistic services. 
that people come to our centers if they needed mediation, we offered mediation. If they needed shelter and protection, we would have offered them. If they needed for their children to be protected, we had many cases of girls being forced into prostitution by addicted parents. Like these are realities in every society that exists. And in most societies, the government takes a proactive approach and try to provide some sort of solution. The moment that the Islamic Emirates or the Taliban came to power, they said, enough of that. We don't want any shelters. Shelters is a quote unquote place of prostitution. So they forced us to cancel all our operations. They, there was a the government agency that was called the Ministry of Women Affairs. And they used to oversee the working of the organization like ours who were working with women, at-risk women and children. That government agency was shut down. Now you have a government agency that's called Ministry of Vice and Virtue. And unfortunately, that tells you the mindset of the Taliban. They think a woman of elements of vice, so to speak. And that is how they are running the show. So we had to shut down uh, dozens of our facilities across the country. Again, this is not only affecting the, 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 the women. These are affecting the children. These are affecting the men, because a lot of these men don't know how to deal with their uh, domestic disputes. And right. it's not that we are grabbing these women and hiding them. We're trying to find a way to the families is stronger. And so the government doesn't want any of those facilities to, to be active anymore. And before you go to the, before you go to the next one, sure. uh, regarding domestic violence, have they imposed uh, you know, officially or unofficially this uh, practice of honor killings? Are we seeing that happening in Afghanistan today? Uh, so, it's a problem in some uh, uh, countries, uh, not just Arabs and Muslims, but in the Jewish community and in different variations in the Christian community. Um, so I'm not trying to single them out, but have we seen a rise in honor killings? Have we heard anything about that occurring in Afghanistan? The, the truth of the matter is the, 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 there is an ongoing debate between different layers of the Taliban authorities. The top leadership, the supreme leader of the Taliban, came up with a very supportive language. Um, in, it was in March of 2022, where he had a statement that said women are equal human beings, they need to be treated with respect, they cannot be sold, they cannot force to be into marriage. So that was a very progressive language. The problem is nobody wants to hear it, nobody follows up on that. Again, the majority of Afghan men, especially the ones who are empowered by the Taliban, are not interested in women's rights. And the Taliban administration in general does not seem to care much about women rights, even you know, despite the fact that the Taliban leadership, top leadership seems to be sensitive about this issue. So you have a reality in which a lot of these women are forced into marriage, again, out of poverty, or are being sold into marriage or are being sold into hard labor. You know, you know there are a variety of options that families are looking for in order to make some money. So if this is not the option, the other way, and the other, they, they are destitute, individuals and they don't have much yeah. resources to begin with so this is what is happening right now and unfortunately taliban administration does not want to basically look into the holistic solution for these families they only are interested in the part that deals with imposition of sharia law without really understanding the social needs of these women and girls let, let me ask you some about some specifics um, are Taliban women um, forced now into marriage arrangements? 
So the, the, the government's position is no, women have the right to be free and choosing their rights. But here is the deal. There is total segregation of men and women, as I said, or there were institutions like us that used to provide mediation and support for girls when they were forced by their family into marriage. No institution like ours is allowed to operate anymore. So we had to close down that part of our operation in Afghanistan because Taliban didn't want to hear it. So in theory, the Taliban insist that they are supportive of women's right to choose their husband. But in reality, there is no legal mechanism to advocate for women. If a woman is victimized by their own family or forced into marriage, they have no place to go. There is right. no mediation system. There is no legal system. There is no shelter. Nothing exists because the Taliban authorities forced us to shut down all those systems. So the, it sounds like the government says, we're going to do these things, which may sound OK. Uh, but in the reality, there's no way to check it. There's no way to determine whether, in fact, they are doing that. And that poses a great danger. What about education for women? Are they allowed to go to school? I heard that they're no longer allowed to get educations. What's the reality facing Afghan women today regarding education? That, that is all part of the problem. You see, um, as uh, the UN statistics says that even prior to the uh, Taliban coming to power, you had 70% of Afghan women having no access to education. So you already had a problem in that country in terms of access to education by female population. Right now, you have authorities telling you that nationally, the girls cannot go to school after the age of 12. So in many parts of the country, including in Kabul, if you are 12 and over, good luck, you can go to school. Now, if you go to a private school, you can still you know, go to school. But again, Afghanistan being a poor country, so it becomes a so, privilege for the rich. So if you're wealthy, if you have the wherewithal and the finances, you can go to school in a private school. I'm assuming an all-girls school um, outside the country or only in Afghanistan. You, you can go pr pretty much. You can go anywhere you want. You know, this is this this is the tyranny of you know poverty. So in Afghanistan, you in capital city, the girls do not have the right to go to school over the age of twelve. The women women are not allowed to go to work. Now, in some provinces, like in Mazar, in northern part of the country, or in Herat, the situation is a little bit more open. So the girls are allowed to go to school, you know, to up to 12th grade. Again, the national authorities have not determined that women have the right to education. That's a problem, number one. Number two, uh, again, even where you, you have the right to education, seems that a wealthy women and wealthy families are more equal than poor people. Number three, again, in the backdrop of widespread poverty, there is an urgent need for families to find a way to survive. So even when you have a child that needs education, you have to decide if you have enough money to send them to school or you, they have to go beg on the street for the next meal. So you see there are multiple issues that right now is coming up. You have authorities who do not basically support the right of women to education and to work. And you have this massive poverty that is happening in the country. And again, the authorities are not doing enough to stop either of them. 
now we've seen where women um, in some oppressive societies um, lose the rights of uh, human rights and judicial rights. Are, have women been stripped of their judicial rights? I mean, do they, are they treated the same as men uh, when they're accused of a crime? Or are we seeing more women now being accused of crimes in Afghanistan, of violating these new restrictions and laws and practices? So the, the, the situation, the legal situation in Afghanistan is far from transparent these days. They used to have a very uh, transparent legal system, which was open to audit by international community, because again, there were legitimate concerns about men and women being treated differently. I know right now there are some attempts, even within the uh, Islamic Emirates authorities, trying to bring women back to force, for example, last few weeks, they've been trying to set up a police force made of women in order to search women because there have been instances where Taliban soldiers, the men went to search, you know, in different houses and then the women, you know, were in the house. They didn't want stranger men coming in. That resulted in massive fighting and even, you know, some murders. So in order to prevent that, the Taliban authorities decided to have an all-female police force in order to deal with social ills. It's a good start, but as you said, there are all sorts of questions about access to legal system. There is a question about the trials. We still don't know what kind of penal code is being followed in Afghanistan, because again, under the uh, old regime, you had a very well-established legal system. You had the court, you had the judiciary, you had the uh, parliament. So everything was set up very clearly. You may not like what you had. Some of the laws were very uh, backward, so to speak, but still you had a system. Right now, you really don't know what the law of the land is. They say Sharia, but whose interpretation of Sharia it is? It, it, this is an open question for everybody. It sounds like Afghan women are living in a uh, life of uh, dire and uh, threatening uncertainty. Absolutely. Uh, maybe Maybe there are some things that may be good, uh, but there's no way to verify it there. What has the United Nations done? Have, has, maybe I should ask the question this way. Has the United Nations, have the United States done enough to help and support Afghan women? Are they doing enough, not just trying, um, but are they able to do anything to help Afghan women? I think um, the uh, U.S. government and many Western governments already spoke with their actions. You know, in August of 2021, they walked out. And that tells you the whole story that thank you, but no thank you. We're no longer interested. And again, there is, uh, this is uh, something that we repeatedly asked for during, back in 2020 and 2021 when the Doha agreement was in progress between the Taliban and the U.S. government. They only decided to talk about security arrangements. There was no mention of human rights, including women rights. And every time that that issue was raised, we were told that, well, that's an inter-Afghan issue. I'm not sure what that meant. But anyway, that meant that the Western parties, specifically the US government, was not interested in talking about women rights issues. And uh, I'm sure you know you, you see the lip service you know, continuing to be the case, but the reality is very different. The reality is there could have been a lot more done. There could have been have 
guarantees from the Taliban, the same way that they have security guarantees that they are not hosting international terrorism, you could have asked the same thing. And I'm sure you could have had some agreements with them while you were talking to them in Doha. They decided not to talk about that. So that's one part of the puzzle. The other part you're talking about the United Nations. Um, the, the challenge with the United Nations is twofold. One thing is that, again, the humanitarian situation in Afghanistan is so dire these days that that takes precedence over everything else. This is exactly our situation as well. We closed down our women protection shelters. We, we closed down a lot of our operations serving women in Afghanistan. Guess what we're doing these days? Providing food to needy families. So far, we have distributed 3,000 packages. We have to uh, distribute another 3,000 food packages in the coming month. Why? Because the winter is coming, because people are unemployed, because families don't have anything to eat, right? I mean, uh, talk about isn't, human rights is, is meaningless if you have no money or no it, food. Isn't that the responsibility of the United Nations? Shouldn't they? I mean, 3,000 is a lot. But certainly it's nothing in comparison to what's needed in Afghanistan. Well, shouldn't the United Nations have a bigger, more active role and presence in this crisis? UN, has, UN, UN agencies are offering aid they can. Again, you, you, you have massive starvation happening. We are, we are just talking about the part that we could really address. There are hundreds of thousands of food packages being distributed by different charities. And this is used UN agencies. You have UNHCR working with refugee returnees in internally displaced individuals. You have World Food Program. You have UNICEF. You know, there are all different agencies that are trying to help. And then you have charities from Turkey, from United Arab Emirates. All these countries are trying to bring food. But again, a country should not become a charity case. This is, this is the bottom line. Right now, Afghanistan has become a charity case for the international community. And that has taken away from our focus on women's rights, right? Because everybody is trying to scratch their head, what is, where is the next meal coming from? And so part of it is that there is a dire humanitarian, agency, a humanitarian need that is happening. And the second part of the puzzle is that UN is dealing with a de facto regime that is not internationally recognized. So there are restrictions in terms of how they can communicate with them, number one. And number two, there is an internal fight within the UN because UN represents the governments of the international community. So they are part of the international community that feel more comfortable with Taliban, namely Qatar or Turkey or Pakistan. And there are parts of the international community that is more you know, restricted in terms of what they want to do in Afghanistan. So all those infighting is reflected in the work of the UN agencies in Afghanistan. Just yesterday, UN Women, which is the agency that works for the improvement of women rights in Afghanistan issued a report on how to improve the inclusion of women in Afghanistan. It was an excellent report. Uh, the problem is, despite all these recommendations, there is not much can be done as long as you have massive unemployment and massive poverty. Because again, you have, you have all the educated pop population is leaving the country. Afghanistan is not a livable country. This is the bottom it, line. It sounds like what you're saying is that the dire situation that now engulfs Afghanistan has pushed the issue of women's rights really off the stage, that you can't really deal with women's rights 
because you have to deal with the existence, the ability to survive of the Afghan people. Uh, we're talking with Kevin Schumacher, the Deputy Executive Director of Women for Afghan Women. Uh, Kevin, I know this is a topic that could go on for several hours. Unfortunately, we're kind of up against our time limit. I just want to say thank you. Um, what is the website for your organization if people want to get more information about what's happening to Afghan women? Thank you, Ray. Uh, our website is Women for Afghan Women. This is the name of the organization, womenforafghanwomen.org. You can come to our website. You can learn more about our work in Afghanistan. We currently have three orphanages run by our organization in different parts of the country. A lot of children abandoned. They have nobody to look after them. We are trying to protect them. Uh, we are providing humanitarian assistance. We are working with different UN agencies to provide assistance to refugees, returnees, internal, internally displaced individuals. And again, we hope one day the Taliban realizes that women are an undeniable part of the population so that they allow women to come back to work. You are denying the access of half of the population to education, to job market. And by doing so, you are depriving the economy of much needed support. So we are hoping that we reach a point that we are allowed again by the authorities in Afghanistan to resume our activities, to provide services for families, including women and children. Thank you. All right, I wanna thank our guest, Kevin Schumacher, Deputy Executive Director of Women for Afghan Women, um, helping Afghan women inside Afghanistan and around the world. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody else, please uh, thank you. We're gonna take a break and when we come back, we will uh, conclude the show. So we will be right back right after these messages. ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. At Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic in Dearborn, we provide effective physical therapy sessions in order to limit pain and discomfort. Top Rehab provides physical therapy care for any diagnosis prescribed by a physician, and we regularly see and treat conditions such as stroke, TMJ, fibromyalgia, sciatica, joint pain, and more. We use a variety of pain management methods, including modalities, soft tissue mobilization, and therapeutic exercise. If you're in need of physical rehabilitation or physical therapy, get the highest quality health care at Top Rehab. Most insurance is accepted and we're open Monday, Wednesday, and Friday 8 to 6, Tuesday and Thursday 8 to 5, and Saturday 10 till 2. Call for an appointment today at 313-846-0555. That's 313-846-0555. Choose Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic on Michigan Avenue in Dearborn. Life's too short to be in pain. I want to thank everybody for listening to this season's uh, episodes of the Ray Hanania Show. I so appreciate it. Remember, you can get more information on our podcast and on this radio show by visiting ArabNews.com slash Ray Radio Show. Have a great week, everybody. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.